Hello, and welcome to RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. When you hear the word disruptor, you may think of Uber or Apple, and most certainly Netflix. They may be the biggest disruptor of them all. How do they do it? Technology for sure, but they say their secret sauce is talent. I sat down recently with Jessica Neal, Netflix's head of talent, at the C2 conference in Montreal. We talked about the company's culture of innovation and disruption. Here's our conversation. Jessica, welcome to Thank you. Montreal, to Canada, to C2. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. We've had, uh, there's been some amazing conversations here over the last couple of days about a lot of things, but the power of creativity and the power of data and how organizations are trying to meld the two has been dominant. And it's hard to imagine an organization that is doing more to harness both kind of human ingenuity and predictive technology better than Netflix. I think today they actually became the world's biggest media company by market cap, so things are going fairly well at Netflix. And we're lucky to have Jessica here to tell us about Netflix culture, which has enabled that incredible uh, growth. But before we get into the Netflix culture story, Jessica, a couple of questions first about you. Okay. This is not your first uh, time at Netflix. You were there a, a, a decade ago. You've come back. I think it's called a, a boomerang. True. What, uh, what brought you back? I started at Netflix in 2006. They were a client of mine. I was a headhunter, and I was helping them find technical talent. They kept recruiting me to join them, and I nicely declined because I was very apprehensive about doing it. But finally, they convinced me, partly because they were some of the smartest people I'd ever met. And uh, secondly, they understood that talent was the most important thing that they could do. So I spent the next eight years working with them, transitioning the company from DVD by mail to streaming, and then helping us transition into making content and, and taking that global. And then I decided that I should leave and um, I look back on that, I don't, <laughs> I don't know why. But um, I had this itch to see if I could go help other companies build great cultures. And so I went off to do that for a few years. And then Reed and I always stayed in touch. And about a year ago, he and I talked about me coming back. And we both felt like it would be a good idea. And my heart was always at this company. And... I felt like the years that I was gone, I was sort of off in this foreign land where nobody spoke my language and I was trying to help people work in a unique way that was about empowerment and trust. And then coming back to Netflix, it's like I'm back home where everybody understands me and we can just focus on the work and do great things. What is it about the culture that, uh, that drew you back? I think the beauty of our culture is its freedom and responsibility. So. We don't have rules and crazy process. What we desire to do is we desire to hire these amazing, talented people and give them this platform to run. So an example of that would be we don't have an expense policy. Our philosophy is spend the company's money as if it were your own. And I think where other companies might differ from us is that we're managing for the masses, not for an anomaly, right? So inherently, people are really good. And if you give them trust, they're going to make good decisions, like on expenses. There will be occasionally that person who doesn't, and then you can handle that at that time, right? So 
we've learned that if you hire talented people, the way that you get the best out of them is getting out of the way. So our job is to figure out how to get more and more out of the way. Now, we're not a regulated business like pharmaceuticals, for example. So in some businesses, maybe you need a little bit more structure or policy. But I always think that if you can find ways to trust and let go and empower your people, they'll do amazing things. That's a great message. Trust your employees and get out of the way. Netflix is famous now for its pivots, its ability to adjust strategy and, and do so fairly, fairly quickly. And in fact, this morning on center stage, the chief operating officer of Box cited the, the company and she talked about Netflix's big three pivots and how important that was to, uh, if, if you're looking at successful companies, to watch a company pivot the way Netflix has. I wonder if you could share some insights from a culture and talent point of view on what allows or enables a company to make those sort of strategic shifts, like you went from DVD by mail to, uh, to streaming, but then you've gone heavily into to content creation, not just distribution, which is a big, a big shift in culture. Yeah. I think it does stem from this idea of freedom and responsibility, that we're trusting our employees to make great decisions and take bets and take risk. But um, we're a culture of feedback. So, and, and usually people are very scared about feedback. Like, you know, in, in a meeting, you'll be next to somebody like, I want to give you some feedback. And you're like, oh, please don't. <laughs> but uh, we try to make that part of our everyday way of working so that that feedback makes us better and better and better so that we're not missing those little small things that take us off track. We're also a testing culture. So we, we test a lot of things, not only in our product, but with content and with day-to-day -day activities. And so we're, testing's about failing, right? So we're not a, a afraid to fail and, and it's all about learning. So the more feedback we can get, the more things we can test, the more failure that we have, the more we learn and that way we're able to, to pivot very quickly. And I think because we're also not bogged down with like crazy processes and rules that allows us to run really fast. And so if we, if we get down a path that we think is the wrong way, we can easily turn around and, and change things. And everybody's ready and armed to do that because we all see the data and it's very clear. It's a really interesting point about failure. The term um, fail fast has become very almost cheapened, but people cite it as part of valley culture. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult in many organizations to actually put that into action because most people aren't good at failure. They, don't, mm -hmm. uh, they didn't grow up celebrating failure. So how do you help people fail? You talked about testing and that maybe depersonalizes it or takes some of the emotion out of it, but it's still probably a challenge for many people. How do you help them through, through that? Uh... Yeah, I think the feedback culture is something that helps um, because me, myself as a leader, I'm given lots of feedback every day about things I could do better. And I talk about that. And so I get in front of my team. Um, our CEO, Reed, gets in front of our team, talks about the things that he needs to get better at things that didn't go as well. And then that creates an environment where people feel safe to make mistakes, right? And we're all human. You know, none of us are perfect. And that's part of the journey. The journey is learning. The journey is finding new ways to think, finding new ways to do things. And you can't do that without feedback. You can't do that without failure. And you can't do that without recognizing and being reflective of yourself. How often is the leadership team in front of employees talking about these 
All the time. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, of course, we have very uh, formal, you know, standard meetings that we have, whether they're quarterly, monthly. But, you know, we'll often send out an email to people and say, hey, this is something I learned. And we'll let everybody know. There's a, a phrase that we have within the company called sunshining. And that is to bring your failures to light. So it's not to hide them, but it's to sunshine it so that everyone has the opportunity to learn from it. And, and does everyone get to sunshine to sort of email everyone in the company yeah. saying, here's well, how I, mean, I you don't screwed up today? Email everybody every time you screw up. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a very large inbox, I'm guessing. Too, too much sunshine. <laughs> yes. But, um, but yes, we encourage people to, to talk about it in the right forums and, and to bring things to light so that not only are they learning, but the rest of us are learning as well. So, but back to the pivot question, um, it's important to have conversations and feedback, but when you're changing strategy, that's a big deal. It in, is. In an organization, how do you help thousands of people or hundreds of people at the leadership level take a very different course, direction that is, strategically? One of the things that I admire about Reed and the way that he's instilled in us to work is that we're constantly talking about the harder things is to figure out what not to do, right? And, you know, when we've been transitioning to, from DVD to streaming, for example, one thing that we really talked about was if we're too married to DVD, it's going to hinder our ability to take streaming to the rest of the world. And if you think about it, a lot of companies that don't make that second F's curve, it's because they hold on to what made them so successful in the first place. So we really try hard to not just hold on. It's, that's fine. It's doing great. But what's next? What can we do to make this next S curve the most amazing thing we've ever done? And so... He talks about that a lot, then us other leaders talk about it a lot. And I think because we're a testing culture, when you look at the data, it's, it's not too scary to take that next leap, right? And a lot of people that come to Netflix come because we're doing things that nobody else has done. And so you want, you, you, you know, you have that desire, it's sort of like that roller coaster. It's like, oh, okay, we'll do it, right? And then you do it and, you know, most of the time it, it works out. <laughs> You, you've referred a few times to this idea of a testing culture. Is that as basic as finding the right data sets, the right metrics, measurements, and let the data speak, or is there, is there well, more to it? There's more to it. I mean, you have to have good ideas. You know, similar to if you're a, a great hitter on baseball, you probably have more misses than you do hits, but your hits are really massive, right? And you win the World Series. So you have to have good ideas to test. You can't, you know... Just testing bad ideas probably doesn't get you anywhere. So, but you're going to have a lot of misses. And you likely will have more misses than you do hits, which is why testing, I think, really enables us to get to the core of what, where we need to be. I wonder if you can share some insights on the cultural journey from Silicon Valley to Hollywood, and then we can talk about going global. But Netflix started very much as an engineering firm, sort of rooted in the valley, and the more you get into content creation, the, the more you've got to probably adopt and adapt to Hollywood culture. Curious how an organization bridges those two, uh, two worlds and how it changes your own culture. Sure. I would say that um, we're never adapting to anybody else's culture. Um, it's more about evolving ours. And, you know, we've we're had to work hard to evolve the way we work. A lot of people talk about maintaining a culture, right? Let's maintain it. And that sort of doesn't make sense if you think about it, because 
you know, as a, as a human or in a relationship, you would never want to maintain. You would want to be better than you are. So what we're trying to do is striving to be better than we are today, tomorrow, right? And so what is it that we're doing well? What is it that we're not doing well? And, and the thing about, a lot of people talk about Silicon Valley and, and Hollywood cultures, but the people that we hire, it's actually easy to meld them, right? Because they're, they're all very talented and they, they bring something different to the table and there's a brilliant thing that happens there. But what we really focus on is how we communicate together, right? How we collaborate, how we make decisions. And so I think what happens at companies is that you, you tend to stick with how you're operating, right? And so you were 500 people and now all of a sudden you're 1,000. But you've got to change the way you make decisions. You've got to change the way you communicate. And those are the things that we work hard to do. For example, when we hit about 1,000 employees, we moved to a memo culture. So we write memos before we go into meetings. And prior to this, um, we'd go into these meetings and somebody would be, you know, up on a screen with a PowerPoint and they go through their slides and you know by the time they were finished with their slides we all had to move on to the next meeting and and nobody got to ask any questions there wasn't really a discussion and then you'd have to schedule a follow-up meeting which is wasteful and so we decided that if people could get the information before the meeting they would be able to process it and then when we got to the meeting we could have the discussion and make decisions and move faster. And it's actually been interesting too, now that we have offices all over the world, it creates this interesting collaboration where these these documents and memos are open all the time so people can go in and comment and raise questions. And then, and then when you get together, finally, you're able to have a much more meaningful, meaty conversation where great outcomes come from it. Tell us a bit more about uh, taking the culture global, because it's fascinating what you're in the midst of. You've, you've, you've blended Silicon Valley and Hollywood fairly successfully, but now you've got to take that to Tokyo or, or, or Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Harder than it seems? It is hard because you have to work harder at communicating and you have to work harder at making sure that people have all the information, which is where memos play a big part. But what, what I'm thrilled about because I get to travel to all of our offices around the world is that they're all a little different, right? And and that could be because of cultural differences. It could be because of the demographic makeup of the office. It could be because of the size. But I find it fascinating. And what I love is that even though we're all a little different, we're grounded in the same value system. So Tokyo may get at a problem differently than LA, but, but we all get there, right? Because we're grounded in the same values. And that's the most important part. And as you become more and more of a global organization, do you anticipate there being a single Netflix culture globally or regional cultures that have connection points, obviously, but also have their own identity? I think it's okay to have our own identity. I mean, all of us, right? Um, We're not a cult. (laughs) But it's really about, again, being um, grounded in the same beliefs and values. And then what's, what's interesting is what we learn from all those different ways of getting at problems, right? Because again, you know, Sao Paulo may come at it differently than our Mumbai office, but, uh, but they get to a really amazing place. And that's how we grow our global IQ as a company, and that's how we get better at serving, you know, the 125 million members we have across the world, because we're learning how to communicate in a global way versus just a domestic U.S. way. 
I want to ask you about the, uh, the, the culture deck that you put out last year. It's an amazing read. If, if, if you want to Google it, just look for Netflix culture deck, um, and it, it, it should pop up. Uh, curious how many people are, I'm sure you're all familiar with the Net Netflix manifesto. How many have read the Netflix manifesto? Probably more, more, no. more than a few. <laughs> Curious, because it became a bit of a legendary document uh, in, in the Valley. I think Sheryl Sandberg referred to it as the most important document to come out of the Valley. And then you came out with this new document last year. Why the need to replace the manifesto and what was key in the messaging of the new, of the new document? So I think what outsiders don't understand is that the manifesto lived in our company for since the beginning, and it was something that we constantly worked on. In 2010, I believe, we decided to release it to the rest of the world so that perhaps they could learn from it. And also, as we were recruiting talent, they could read it and, and understand whether or not that way of working was for them. And then it was in sort of this um, old school static Netflixy PowerPoint way, and we we moved this memo culture. And so I think it was a natural evolution for us to move it into a memo. And what I love about the memo is that it's less static. You can really read it and understand it. And for those of you that have maybe followed this manifesto, you will see that we're always changing the way that we think about it, which goes back to that evolution versus maintenance, right? We've added inclusiveness as a value, and that wasn't in the slide deck, right? So it's constantly, like once a year, we'll look at it as a whole company. We'll start with Reed. He'll send it down to the leaders. We all start editing it. We all start saying, like, what's true today? What's not true today? What do we need to be better at? What's missing? And, and we add those. One of the points you stress in the new document is teamwork, and you're quite frank that teamwork is not family. Yes. People need to understand the difference. Maybe you can explain a bit of the, uh, of the difference. Well, I always say that I would never want to fire my mama. <laughs> so, so I love her, and, but I don't want to work with her necessarily. I just spent last weekend with her, and we were planting flowers, and you know, it didn't quite go well. Um, which is why I'm confident we wouldn't work well together. But so it's, it's really, think about, we use the analogy of sports teams and some people are sports fans, but when you have a sports team, you're constantly trying to figure out who are the best players that'll enable you to win. And um, if it was your family, you know, and you had your, your brother and your sister and your mom, dad, friend, um, it, it would be hard to have that candid conversation and say, you know, mom, you're just not playing as well as you used to, and I'm going to have to cut you and let you go, right? So we're trying to create a team that, that will win, right? And, and we want the best players, and, and that's what a dream team is, is all about. And, and you're quite frank in the document about performance, and the company takes a very blunt approach to performance. If you don't perform, you're, you're, you're out. How do you push that high-performance culture without creating an atmosphere of fear or excess anxiety? Good question. I think one misnomer is that because we say that our attrition is is higher than other organizations, and to be honest, it's not. We just talk about it more openly, and that's that's what our culture is about: is to talk about the hard things, is to give feedback. And when you're you know when you're not performing, it's it's not a surprise, and it's not um, we don't run around you know with pink slips just you know <laughs> throwing them out to people. We try to give feedback so that people can do better and 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 win. But sometimes there comes a point where 
you and the person know it's just not working out and, and we're open about that conversation. Whereas some organizations, you know, they may wait till the end of the year and they lay off the bottom 3% and that's just not how we operate. We choose to just talk about it more freely. Another value that you stress is inclusion, as you uh, referenced earlier, and clearly uh, one of the challenges for the world, but the Valley, especially over the last year or so, has been Me Too. Mm -hmm. Curious how you as a female executive have thought through the challenges of Me Too and wonder why it took so long for us to come to grips with or, or even ask these questions. Sure. So when there are power dynamics at play, it's really hard for people to speak up and for there to be change. You know, for me personally, I feel a huge responsibility to not only be a role model to women internally at Netflix, but also externally. And it's also, you know, my privilege to help Netflix be a leader in the industry with this. And so I think it's not about why it took so long I think it's about where we are right now. And let's take equal pay, for example. It's not that hard. Just write a check, right? Write a check, pay them. It's not that hard. So I think companies just need to start paying attention and they need to make sure that anyone that's underrepresented has opportunity to thrive and to do great work. And so I'm, I'm happy that we're we're having this conversation and I'm, and I'm proud that I get to be part of helping uh, a company be a leader. But how do you do that as an organization? Because I suspect most executives would agree entirely with you. It's an easy point to uh, agree with. It's, it's much harder for many organizations to take action. So what do you see when you look around the world? Do you see as kind of the obstacles, either conscious or unconscious, that are holding us back? I mean, look, there's a lot of work to do. And I think part of being able to act is having proximity to the issue. It's awareness, right? And I think what's happening now, and you're seeing this era, is that these stories are being told and people are becoming more aware. And if you're more aware, then you can change your behavior. You can change your action. But if you don't have awareness, then nothing can happen, nothing can change. And so that's what I think needs to continue to happen and companies need to continue to strive to hear these stories and pull them out of their employees and, and they need to change things. We've got uh, just a minute left, but I wonder if I can ask you for your perspective on Canada from a talent point of view. <laughs> you have a great perch looking around the world at uh, talent in multiple sectors that uh, come together and what Netflix is doing. What do you see in Canada that is catching your eye and what should we be developing? Well, I mean, look at this room of all this amazing creative talent that is here. Canada has been one of the top three biggest producers for us in, in talent in front of the camera and behind. And shows like Riverdale, Alias Grace, and with an E, they're ama amazing. And, and the great thing about what we can do together is tell those stories around the world and not just to people here. We have 125 million members that want these stories. And so we're constantly looking for resources in which around the globe in which can be these avenues of storytelling and entertainment for our members. And Canada is a rich resource for that. 
In fact, today we, we just announced a co-production with CBC for Northern Rescue, which is really exciting. I also heard that you went to a taping last weekend. How did you enjoy that? What were you there for? Now, See, I'm not going to make you talk. Now you're the questions. Uh, we're, we're out of time. <laughs> no, this is, that's this, lame. This was the, uh, the SCTV uh, filming in Toronto, which was fantastic. It was extraordinary. I grew up with SCTV, so it was a thrill to see it and see that they're still as funny as a number of years ago. Yeah, so that's what we're excited about with, with Canada and being here is to help enable all the storytellers here to tell those stories globally. What's, what's your last bit of advice for the storytellers? What should they be thinking about, focusing on, from, especially from a talent point of view? I mean, I think great stories come in many different forms. And what I think is beautiful about the marriage between creative storytellers and Netflix is that we allow freedom. Just like in our culture, we allow freedom with our storytellers. There's not, we don't have advertising, for example, so we're not going to make you take a commercial break. You're allowed to tell the story how you want. In our series, for example, because there's no advertising, you don't have to wait. You don't have to make it for a certain amount of time. If you want to make an episode 16 minutes and another one 35 minutes, you can do that. So, um, I, I really just get excited about the things that these amazing people are creating through us because I, I, I'm a fan and I get to watch them and, and experience myself. So I wouldn't have advice on how to tell great stories, but I have advice on with us, you, you get to actually do it the way you would want to do it. And I think that's pretty cool. Jessica, thank you so much for making the trip to Montreal and sharing this extraordinary uh, story uh, with you. us. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for downloading RBC Disruptors. Our show this week was produced and edited by Peter Henderson. You can reach us at rbcdisruptors at rbc.com and join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.